Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we're going to conclude chapter 4 and move into chapter 5 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 4, we will be looking at verses 44 of chapter 4 all the way through to verse 6 of chapter 5. Deuteronomy 4, 44 to chapter 5, verse 6. If you're paying attention, you'll notice that we have skipped over for the time being, verses 41 to 43. We will get to those. They will come under one of the commandments. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient words, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the statutes, or the testimonies, the statutes and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan. From Eroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Syrian, that is, Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God, you may be seated. So as we arrive at our text this morning, we come to the end of one section of Deuteronomy and we begin and enter into a new section in the book of Deuteronomy. We, be, we come to the end of the prologue, the end of the history lesson that Moses had been giving the people or preaching to the people And the beginning of a new section, the introduction to, the retelling of, the law to this new generation of Hebrews who were standing here at this moment on the shores of the Jordan River, ready and eager to go into and take possession of the land that had been promised to their fathers, to their ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob 430 years earlier. In the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses highlights, Moses bullet points for the people that are listening on that day, what became of the previous generation, what had become of their fathers and their mothers. The generation to whom the law had first been given 40 years earlier at the base of Mount Sinai. When you read Exodus 20, that is the first telling of the law to that generation of Israelites. When you get to Deuteronomy 5, it is the retelling or the second telling of the law to this new generation of Israelites. And he highlights for them, the current, for the current population that is listening to him on this day, he highlights for them the faithfulness of God in leading them, in leading this generation to this point. Now they stand at the verge of entering and conquering Canaan as their new homeland. And so Moses reminds them that the previous generation, the previous generation, their fathers, they had been delivered from enslavement and bondage in Egypt. And they witnessed, they watched firsthand with their very own eyes the 
powerful, the wonderful, the awe-inspiring works of the Lord in saving them. However, even with such a clear demonstration of his love, even after so clearly observing the evidence of God's commitment to them, witnessing his mighty, unstoppable strength initiated and employed on their behalf, that generation, the previous generation, still refused to go up into the promised land. They still refused to trust in the care and supremacy of the Lord. And so what did they do? They rebelled against their God in the wilderness, refusing to press on to Canaan, refusing to go in and to overthrow the wicked peoples there and capture the land as the Lord had commanded them to do. They even went so far in their faithlessness and in their rebellion that they threatened Moses' very life. And they hatched a plan to kill him and Aaron while installing, while planning to install a new leader to lead them back to their bondage and their harsh enslavement in Egypt. Talk about rebellion. And so the Lord swore, as a result, the Lord swore in his wrath that none of the people of that generation 20 years or older would enter the land of promise. None of them would enter into his rest, but would instead die in the wilderness. The previous generation of Israelites were a, an unbelieving, hard-hearted set of rebels with evil hearts that led them to, even in such, with such a clear demonstration of God's love, to fall away from him. That generation, the writer of Hebrews tells us, provoked the Lord to wrath, and for that reason, they did not enter the land of Canaan, but instead, all of their bodies fell in the wilderness. It's a clear display of God's holiness, isn't it? God does not take lightly rebellion against him. God does not take lightly the trampling on or rejection of his love advanced to the people. And all of us who, everyone in the world today, who would, like Israel of old, choose slavery and bondage in Egypt or to sin rather than life and rest and freedom in Christ, all who would hear the gracious offer of salvation by grace through faith like we just heard this morning and say to themselves, you know what, I would rather my sin than the Savior Jesus Christ... All who would rather remain in bondage, all who would rather trample on the offer of grace and the offer of his love, those, such who do that, provoke the Lord's wrath today. And should those continue in their rebellion, they too will die in the wilderness, so to speak. The, old, the ancient Israelites, by that rejection turned what ought to have been an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea or to the land of promise, an 11-day journey, they turned it into a 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness with no place to call home. But after that last of that generation died, after all of the bodies fell in the wilderness, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord finally said to Moses, turn northward. In other words, it's time. It is time to head toward the land of Canaan because now I am going to make good on the promises that I have made. And as the nation turned northward and started to move toward the promised land, they engaged in battle or they encountered two kings who were mightier than they were. Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. And the Lord gave both of these nations into the hand of Israel, once again proving his love for, commitment to, and power acted out on behalf of this nation, Israel. And Israel conquered both kingdoms. Israel took over their territories. And Israel settled in these newly acquired lands. 
The first four chapters of Deuteronomy are a reminder to this new generation of Israelites. They are a recitation to them of the Lord's faithfulness. These chapters recounted for them the Lord's defeat of their enemies as they looked across the Jordan at the land that they were about to go up and take. In Deuteronomy 4 specifically, Moses, before retelling the law of the Lord, calls on the people to take seriously what they are about to hear. To be careful, to listen, and to do the law that will be delivered to them. Don't be like your fathers who witnessed firsthand the the glorious work of the Lord and rebelled. You, instead, listen, be careful to do knowing that your God loves you. You see, your fathers, O Israel, were barred and forbidden from the land. And as you hear this this law now being given to you, Moses will tell them there are a few things that you need to know by way of prologue. First, you are barred and forbidden from adding to the law of God. And you are barred and forbidden from subtracting anything from the law of God. In other words, Israel, you are to hear and to obey. You are to understand the law of God and then to conform your life to it. To learn it. To do everything that the Lord has commanded you to do. Then you might ask a question. Why? Why would God give them a law, and why would God command that they conform to it? Why were they to take care to obey? Why did the Lord deem it necessary to give them a law and then say to them, you must be careful to do it all? Was it because the Lord hoped to rob Israel of joy and freedom and liberty and life? No. The Lord, in giving His people, this people, His perfect, holy, righteous law, was inviting that people to participate in an unhindered relationship with the God who loved them and wanted their best. And in so doing, He was inviting them to live a life of true freedom, of wonderful joy, of abundant blessing. And the Lord had proven this to the people over and over and over again, right? That his intentions for them were good. He proved this to them by, as 4.20 says, bringing them out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. He demonstrated his love for this people as he remained close to them. You remember in Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, Moses says to the people, he asks them this question, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? The answer to that question is, there are no other nations that have a God so close to it as the Lord God is to Israel. This is a unique blessing that has been given to them. And the Lord displayed his good intentions for Israel by blessing them with his commandments. See, we tend to see commandments as restrictive, but the Lord, in giving Israel commandments, was blessing them. That's what Moses will say in chapter 4, verse 8. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The answer again, there isn't a nation that has such a blessing as this. Only Israel at this time and place had been blessed with such a specific revelation of the Lord's person, his attributes, his commands. Only Israel, of all the peoples on the earth at this point, knew exactly who the Lord was, who the Lord is, what he is like, how to live acceptably before him. And the Lord also declared his steadfast love in that before he actually told the people or revealed or retold the law to this people on this occasion, he revealed to the people another something that they should know for certain. He told them in chapter 4 that this people would not actually be able to keep and to do the law that he is commanding them to keep and to do. He told them that in time there would come a day when they rebelled against it And turn to idols. And the Lord would, at that time, discipline the nation of Israel. He would give them what they want. If you want idols so bad, I'm going to give you those idols. 
And in time, they would see the worthlessness of those idols. And the Lord made it clear to them, even in that, even as I send you to the nations where you are going to worship those idols, I will not give up on you. Even in your rebellion, my love for you will not halt. My loyal, steadfast love for you will not go away. My plan for you will not cease. My purpose for you will not be hindered. The covenant-keeping, loving kindness of the Lord will ensure that there will come a day, as we read in Deuteronomy 4.30, when Israel will return to the Lord and obey His voice. And again, you might ask, well, why? Why will they return? Is it because Israel on her own is worthy of so great a love as the Lord's? No, no, they are not. Is it because they're deserving of such loyalty and commitment as the Lord has for the promises that he's made? No, no, it is not. It is because the Lord is great. It is because the Lord is greatly to be praised. It is because the Lord has set his love on this people, because the Lord has made promises to this people, and the Lord reveals throughout Scripture that he is a promise-keeping God, not a promise-breaking God. He is the God who keeps his word, who does exactly what he says he's going to do, and more. And so he told them in Deuteronomy 4, verse 31, The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Now, what does this verse mean? It means this. He's a merciful God who will not leave the nation of Israel or destroy them. He will not replace them. He will not transfer their promises made to them to another people so as to forget the promises he made to them. No, the Lord will not forget his covenant with them. And that's an important point to understand here because what the Lord is doing in this text is revealing to them his loyal, steadfast love for them before he gives them his law. In other words, for all these reasons and more, O Israel... For this display of love that I have given to you in saving you from Egypt and promising to be with you on into the future, for all of this, know that I have proven my love for you at every single turn. And therefore, in chapter 4, verse 40, you shall keep his statutes and commands. So you see, the first four chapters of Deuteronomy set before the people numerous reasons and numerous proofs of the Lord's love for and commitment to his people Israel. And knowing this, knowing that his commitment to and love for the Israelites is so strong, the Israelites, therefore, are to hear the commands of the Lord and obey them because they are good and they spring out of a loyal, loving, good God. And so as we come to chapter 4, verse 44, we come to a new stage in the book, the introduction to the giving, and then the explaining of the law that he's going to set before Israel on, that, on this day. By way of quick overview, this giving and explaining of the law is going to span chapters 5 all the way through 26. That's the next section of Deuteronomy. It spans from 5 to 26. In chapter 5, we're going to see the Ten Commandments reiterated to this new generation of Israelites. In chapters 6 to 11, we will hear the Lord repeatedly call upon the Israelites to be careful, to be committed to, and to be loyal to the Lord by obeying these commandments. And then from chapters 12 to 26, Moses will outline detailed legislations about such things as where the people of Israel are to worship the Lord. What is clean and unclean foods, Sabbath days and years, the observance of feasts and festivals, laws about worship, laws about property, laws about inheritance rights, laws about rebellious children, laws about sexual immorality, along with, another, with a whole host of other miscellaneous laws and regulations. It's quite comprehensive. We're going to work through all of it. And as Moses turns his focus to the giving of the testimonies, the rules and the commands, of the covenant set forth by the Lord, he signals this in verse 44 by saying, by marking a shift in the purpose of what he's going to say next. Like it's a marked shift. Do you see it in verse 44? This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. As in, the prologue is finished, 
It's done. Now we move to the, here is the law set before the people. Moses has now prepared the people to hear it. And all that follows from chapter 5 to 26 will constitute the divine law, the Torah of the Lord to Israel. This is the collection of God's commands to the nation. He starts by saying in verse 45, these are the testimonies. The testimonies here means the solemn covenant statements, the regulations and the prescriptions declared to the nation by the Lord. These are the statutes, verse 45 says, meaning the precise commands given to the people, commands that they must take great care to obey. These are the rules, verse 45 also says, meaning the judgments and the case law that are decided by the godly, faithful judges in Israel. You see, while the law of God is quite comprehensive, there would be times when the law didn't specifically cover every single circumstance. And so Israel had these judges who would make decisions based on what they read from the Word of God, and those became precedents in Israel. These are called the rules. So we read, these are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And from 46 to 49, he gives you the location of where these law, this law is given to the people. And he reminds them as he, as he speaks the location, notice he puts in the location, these were the lands of Sihon and Og. These were the lands of these kings that the Lord faithfully led you to defeat. And as Moses is giving them the law, he is giving them the law on the very land that once belonged to these formidable kings. As if to say, you know how faithful the Lord has been because look at where your feet are planted right now. It's planted on land that the Lord secured for you when he defeated Sihon and when he defeated Og. And that was meant to instill and to inspire confidence, faith, and trust in the Lord from the people. As they looked down on their feet, down at their feet, and saw ground that if not for the Lord's loving, caring kindness to them, they would never have owned. And as they stand on that very ground that the Lord won for them, the people were to know They were to understand that the commands that the Lord is about to give them are non-negotiable. They were set down for them by a Lord, by the living God who loves them, who fights for them, and secures the victory for them. These commands that the Lord is going to give to the nation, they are not left up to the individual opinions of the people. The people weren't given the option of seeing the Ten Commandments given to them and treating them like some flea market bin where you could kind of rummage through and say, oh, you know what, this whole murder one, I like this one, but, you know, the adultery one, not so much. This was not the case. You just couldn't do that. This option was not given to the people to follow the ones that they liked, the ones they appreciated, the ones that suited them while passing over the ones that they didn't like or appreciate. The people of Israel were not given the choice, they were not given the freedom to check the cultural winds, to see which way they were blowing, and then try to adjust the law of God to fit the inclinations and the biases of the nations around them or the cultural winds as they're blowing. The people of Israel were not given the option of hiding these rules or commands of God in order to keep from offending the nations and the peoples around them. In fact, the very opposite was true. I don't know how we've gotten to the point where we like to hide the rules of God so that we don't offend people as they come in to worship with us. The opposite is true in Scripture. Israel, by strictly following God to the letter and insisting that any visitor in their their nation, any passer-through, any sojourner among them do the same. When you read the Old Testament, you will see that anyone who was in, e- in Israel had to follow the rules, the commands, and the customs that God had set down for the nation of Israel. They had to act like and obey the commands of the Lord. And these commands that God will give them this day apply to the entire nation, meaning no Israelite was exempt. The law was not flexible. It didn't change with times and cultures. The law did not and does not respect the ever-changing values of the peoples throughout the ages. 
And so on this day, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel. You see that? He summoned all Israel. Moses called the entire nation to himself. Every man, every woman, every child were called to hear the words and to hear the terms of the covenant. Again, no person in Israel was exempt. They were all to hear and obey the stipulations, the regulations, and the provisions given to them on this day. Listen to it again. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So it begins, hear, O Israel. Now, you might look, read that and think it means open your ears and listen, but that's not what that word means. It isn't a call to simply take in audible sounds. It is a call to pay, paying close attention, concentrating on, taking heed of the words that are being delivered to you with an ear or an eye to obeying and living by what you hear. Right? It's not just passively taking in but committing yourself to actually doing what it is that you're hearing. The words of the covenant were for Israel to be their charter of life in the promised land. And so Moses appeals to the nation, hear, as in obey and live. And interestingly, this call to hear extends to us new covenant Christians as well. As Israel was to hear the word of God, to respond to it, by, having, by faith in the Lord and then by living it out, so too are we. If you want to know who the living God is, where do you turn? If you want to know what God is like, where do you look? If you want to know everything that He has done for us and how He has proven His love for His people at every turn, where do you go to find that out? What does he expect from those who would be his children? Where do you look? The answer to every one of those questions is the same. You go to the Word of God, the Scriptures. If you would serve the Lord, you must obey Him. If you would obey Him, you must know what it is that He commands. If you would know what it is that He commands, then you go to the Word where He sets it out for us. You must hear the Word preached. You must read the Word now, some would say, some have said to me in the past, you know, like, I just don't like reading. So what does that mean for me? It means God delivered him, his, word, his will to you in a book. That means you become a reader. You concentrate on it. You study it. You meditate on it. You fill your mind with it. You organize your life in such a way so as to pay close attention to it, to make time for it as the center of your learning. As the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, once said when he was preaching, you can visit many good books, but live in the Bible. What a great phrase, right? Live in the Bible. So Moses says, hear the statutes and the rules, and he says, you shall learn them. When he says you shall learn them, he means make every effort to know them, to be instructed by them, to fill your mind with them, to remind yourself of them day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone were to ask you on the street or in an elevator to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Could you do it? This is one of the things that always shocks me. The degree to which those who profess to be Christian cannot clearly articulate the gospel of Christ. Why can we not articulate the gospel of Christ clearly? Because we don't do what Moses told us to do here, learn the word of God. It's one thing to be confused about your eschatology. It's one thing to be confused about the doctrine of impassibility or to try to figure out how Jesus is truly God and truly man and how three are one in the, tr- in the Trinity. It's a, one thing to be confused about predestination and how all of that works and where does the will come in and all that. Those are the, it's one thing to be confused about those things. But let me just say this. No Christian anywhere should ever be confused about the gospel. 
No person who professes to be a believer in Christ should be content to remain unable to tell or to grasp the gospel. Because if you can't, let me ask you a couple of questions. How do you know if you're saved? If you don't know the gospel, how do you know you're saved? Right? If you don't know the gospel, how do you obey the primary purpose for the, the Christian church, which is to go into all the world and make disciples? This is a larger problem among Christians than we might expect. Let me tell you, a, a few years back, I was asked to go and speak. If you've been here, you've heard this story before. If you're new, you haven't. It's good. I was asked to go and speak at a missionary-minded, like they trained missionaries to go out into the world as missionaries. Now, you would assume that when you go to a place that is training missionaries, that they have one thing nailed down tight, right? What would that one thing be? The gospel. But for some reason, as I walked in that day, I said, you know what? Tell me the gospel. I never hear it enough. I want to hear it again. I want to hear it six times from each one of you. Not one of them could do it. After being in a missionary training school for over a year, not one of them could preach the gospel. That is a sad, sad, sad state of affairs. Because if they're being trained and they can't do it, what does that mean for us? Can you? Someone stopped you in an elevator and said, tell me about Jesus. Could you do it? Could you give them the saving message of the gospel? If you can't, that should now be your number one priority. Until you can, you should fast, study, read, learn, pray, meditate on the scriptures. Do whatever you need to do. Do whatever you must to understand the gospel so that you can tell it to other people. If you're not, you're just plain being disobedient, and I would think maybe you're not even saved. If you want to learn how to do that, talk to an elder, talk to your pastors, talk to a trusted believer. Do what you need to do to get to that place where you can say, I know the gospel. And I can tell somebody the gospel if they ask. Learn God's word. Back to Moses. As you learn the word of God, verse 2, be careful to do the word of God. Be careful, keep watch, be always on guard, always be examining your heart, soul, and mind so that you're always considering how to best conform your life to the word of God. So again, the law of the Lord to Israel as recorded in Deuteronomy is, as we will see over the next little while, quite comprehensive. It touched upon and covered almost every area of life and so was to be consulted by your average Israelite for much of everyday life. Every day they were to go to the Bible to see how it applied to or touched upon whatever it is that they were going through in life. If you were to go and read Leviticus, you would see that it focuses more on priesthood and sacrificial system, but if you spend your time in Deuteronomy, you will see that it's wider in scope and covers much of the comprehensive daily life of an average Israelite. And so, as Moses is telling Israel these things, he's saying, Israel, hear and learn, be careful to know and to do everything that I command in this law. And you, child of the Lord, here this morning, you... Take up God's word and read. Hear what the Lord commands. Hear the words that come from the, from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear what he expects from all of you who would say that he is your Savior and your Lord. Hear what he would say to you who claim this morning to be saved by grace through faith in his name. Take up God's word and learn it. Take up the scriptures and be careful to understand it correctly and do what it says. Because every single one of the rules and commands and statutes that our Lord Jesus Christ sets down for us, let me just tell you this, they're for your good. They're for your freedom. They're for your life. So Moses continues in verse 2. 
The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Three things to note in that, in that sentence. First, remember who it is that entered into covenant with us at, at Sinai, O Israel. It is the Lord. Consider, O Israel, the high honor that this is, that the Lord of heaven and earth, the living God, the one true God, who could have chosen any person on the earth in the days of Abraham, who could have worked through any peoples on the earth, has chosen to push his plans and purposes forward through us, O Israel. The Lord has taken us to himself. Who are we that such a precious and wonderful promise would be given to us? Second, this Lord made a covenant with us. So the Lord made a covenant, now the Lord made a covenant with us. Meaning, he's entered into an agreement with us and he has bound himself by promising to bless us as we obey and hold up our end of the covenant. Israel, the Lord did not need to bind himself to us. Nothing forced the hand of the Lord. But because he is great and he is greatly to be praised, he swore on his own name to bless us with land and provisions and peace and prosperity should we obey his laws and his statutes that he sets down before us today. So the Lord made a covenant with us, thirdly, with the nation of Israel of all people. The one true God has chosen this nation to be his royal nation, to be his kingdom of priests, his blessed nation at this moment in time, with one clear and explicit law for every single person in that nation. He continues in verse 3 and he says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us alive here today. Now, as I went through the commentaries, there were two possible meanings for this. It could mean that it was not with our fathers, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that that our God made this covenant, which would mean that the promises of God lay far in the future. They didn't, didn't attain to them, but they all died prior to receiving or seeing those promises fulfilled. That privilege belongs to this generation of Israelites standing on the shores of Canaan on this day. The Lord gave to us, to us, this holy Mosaic law, not to Abraham. Could also mean not with our fathers as in the previous generation, the generation that died in the wilderness. In that case, Moses is saying to the Israelites that day, That when they stood at Sinai that very first time and the Lord told the law in Exodus 20, he was telling the children in the crowd because he knew that the fathers would rebel against the Lord and all die in the wilderness. Either way, the point remains the same. To this generation, the Lord has granted the privilege and the blessing of the covenant, entry into the land, and the giving of the law of God. To this generation, the love of the Lord has flowed over. And for this reason, the response of this generation ought to be one of gratitude and devotion to the Lord who has proven himself faithful and excellent at every turn. I want you for a moment to consider this for yourself for a moment. If you truly do trust Christ this morning... You know why you trust Christ? It's because the Lord has proven himself faithful to you at every single turn. He has so clearly shown to you the lengths and the depths and the breadth of his steadfast loving kindness. He has demonstrated to you his commitment to your ultimate good. And for that reason, as it was for ancient Israel, the Lord has blessed us also with rules for life in the New Testament. And he commands that we display his holiness and righteousness as well as his goodness and love. Every one of the commands set down for us by our Lord Jesus Christ is given to us. Why? Because he wants to rob you of joy? No, because he loves you. And he loves to bless you. The commands of our Lord are designed to bless. They're designed to promote life. And not just life, but life to the full. The commands of the Lord are designed to elicit our joy. For many, that Jesus would make demands on our lives and clearly defines what is sinful and what is good is a major irritation. If you notice, when you go out into our culture, you'll see that a lot of people like Jesus. But they like Jesus until you define Jesus as Jesus defines himself in Scripture. They like the Jesus who permits you to do anything you want, whenever you want, how you want. 
They don't like the Jesus who would have the audacity to say, you must forgive as you've been forgiven. They don't like the Jesus who would say, if you hold anger in your heart, you are liable to the hell of fire. They don't like the Jesus who says sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, lustful thoughts, divorce, retaliation, and vengeance are all grievous sins. They don't like that the apostles who learned from Jesus could write that impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies are works of the flesh, and those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They don't appreciate the Jesus who would tell all that who would be his disciples that they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. That they must die to self, turn away from their sins as they turn to him. And that he clearly commands repentance, and through the apostle Peter will say, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and brotherly affection. Everybody loves Jesus until you define him. For many, the commands of the Lord are thought to be a hindrance to happiness, a hindrance to, I hate this word, but they use it out in the world, a hindrance to your authenticity. When in reality, the authenticity that is pushed upon people by the word by the world, is pushed upon them by unseen forces that are plotting both their physical and their spiritual death. If you've been tracking with my emails, you know that I've been referencing this book quite a bit. We're going to do it again this morning. I was struck by this phrase in this book. I'm at that stage where i got to lift up my glasses. It says this, If a teenager desires to experiment sexually but also desires to uphold sex as something sacred and reserved for marriage. All right, so you see there's this mixed battle going on in this teenager. They know Scripture commands uh, sexuality as being sacred and reserved for marriage, but the world is saying you must be authentic and follow your heart. He goes on and he says, It is obvious which set of desires those telling her to follow her heart would consider to be from her real heart. She will believe she is being true to herself and free from social constraints when she is really a pawn in the sexual agenda. So you see the devastation and destruction that our world brings about by the so-called freedom and authenticity that it pushes. Right? Because the world doesn't tell you authenticity is following the Word of God. It says authenticity is showing the most intimate parts of your body on the internet so that others can ogle it. That's how you're powerful. But the Scriptures say, no, be chaste, be obedient to the Lord. Authenticity, as the world promotes it, is a devastating and damning lie. Because authenticity, as the world would push it, is not listening to the commands of God, but listening to your own heart, and your own heart is deceptive and deceitful. This is why God gives us a law. This is why God gives us commands. And if you're one of those guys that is looking at these girls on the internet as they show the most intimate parts of her bodies, I will just say this, shame on you. Repent of your wicked awful sin. Shame on you. I know that's not a popular thing to say. Christians shouldn't be talking about shaming other people, but shame on you. Repent. Believe the gospel. The commands of our Lord Jesus Christ are not given to rob us of blessing. They are given as a joy and blessing that promotes further joy and blessing. As the Lord blessed that generation of Israelites with a perfect holy law, that if they would follow it, it would bring life and joy in its train, so he blesses us also with rules and commands and righteous, his righteous will in the New Testament as well. And know this, just to make it clear, obeying the commands of the Lord, you've already heard it well put out this morning, obeying the commands of the Lord is not what saves a person. 
We are saved by the grace of God alone, and that grace is laid hold of by faith in Christ alone. But a desire to obey the Lord is the natural byproduct of a truly saved soul. And we strive to obey the commands of the Lord because we know that this God who loves us so and has proven himself at every turn gives us good, noble, right rules. We know they proceed from the Lord who has proven his love for us again and again. I got so much more. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. This is part of the first commandment. We didn't get to the first actual commandment, but this is the first commandment here. And I want you to note that the deliverance from slavery in Egypt is the central event. It is the foundation upon which the Lord rests his case to Israel. As the Lord delivers the lot of the people, he is ordering his people that are redeemed by his hand and telling them what it means and how to live as his redeemed people. And note what he says, I am the Lord meaning there is no other, and to you, O Israel, I have revealed my covenant name. Now, in your Bibles, you will see it's all capitals, right? L-O-R-D, all in capitals, unless you have the LSB or the HCSB, they will actually use the personal covenant name that is revealed by God in those translations, and that personal covenant name is Yahweh. So the verse actually reads, I am Yahweh your God. You, O Israel, of all the peoples of the earth, to you I have given my name. It was I, Yahweh, the living God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, meaning I am your rescuer, I am your savior, I am your emancipator, I am your champion. I am the one who delivered you from bondage and deprivation, so you can trust that the words that I speak to you now are words that are born out of my love for you. And this constant reminder, this is a constant reminder in the scriptures. This is the pivotal event in the Old Testament. The Lord will remind the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 28 times that he saved them from his bondage in Egypt. This is the great display of God's love in the Old Testament. And it foreshadows the greater deliverance from enslavement to sin and its wages, which are death in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I took up the, my last annual Bible reading plan, I'd run out of all, all the other color highlighters, so I chose orange because it's the only one left in the pack. And I thought, I'm going to highlight every single time in Scripture that the Lord refers back to His saving Israel from bondage in Egypt, or I brought you out of Egypt. If you do that, you will note just how frequent my Bible is all orange. That's how important this event is. The exodus from Egypt, and this is an important point, the exodus from Egypt is the good news that is placed before the call of God to Israel to obey the law. The Lord, by His power and grace, saved the nation, delivered them from bondage, and then after saving them, called for a response from them. Meaning, the law is not given to the people to save them. It is given to a people who have already been liberated and redeemed from slavery. It's an important point because it means the law is not given to redeem a people. The law is not given as a pathway to redemption. The law cannot save anyone. It has never been able to save anyone. The law was given to this people after their redemption as the Lord called on them to live as his redeemed people. Now in our day, we will define freedom to mean the absence of any restraints, the absence of any rules, the absence of oversight. Freedom is being able to make whatever decision I want, when I want, how I want. Freedom is nobody telling me what to do. Freedom is choosing as I wish. Is that the Lord's definition of freedom? Because if your definition of something and the Lord's definition of something are different, then whose definition should win out? Good, the Lord's, yes. The Lord's definition of freedom and liberty contradicts our definition because the Lord delivers Israel, right? Brings them out from bondage in Egypt to liberty in Canaan. That freedom and liberty in Canaan, however, is not 
okay, now we're in the land. I can do what I want, when I want, as I want, how I want. But instead, the freedom and the liberty that God offers to the people is, you live life according to my law. Live life according to my will. Obey my rules and my statutes carefully. Freedom in Israel meant rules. It meant boundaries established to keep people away from sin because sin is what brings death and enslavement. To obey the Lord is to truly live free. Living without restraints is reckless and wicked. In fact, you know, we are all waiting for that day, right? When we are glorified in body and in soul and there is no temptation to sin in us anymore. And think of it like this. Who's the most free being in all of existence? The Lord. Can the Lord sin? No, He cannot. So freedom is not being able to choose to sin or to not sin. Freedom is not being able to choose sin at all. Therefore, God gives a law that helps to define boundaries to keep us from running into enslavement, but instead to live within the boundaries of freedom and life. Amen. Father, you are good and gracious and wonderful and holy. We thank you for your law. And I pray that in those moments when we think of your law as restrictive, in those moments when we would have our flesh trying to battle with the freedom we know comes from living according to your word, I pray that by the power of the Spirit in us that you would help us to choose the liberty of following the word of Christ. Keep us from sin. Help us to resist the devil. Lord, we can't do it on our own. And Lord, I thank you that when we fail to live up to your law and when we fail that our Savior is greater than our sin, I thank you that Jesus, our Lord, has saved us from all of our sin, past, present, and future. I thank you that his perfect life is credited to our account. I thank you for all of that. I thank you for our positional holiness. I thank you that when you look at us, you see the perfect righteousness of Christ. And I ask on top of that that you would help us to live that out in this life. Help us not to be caught up in sin. Help us not to be entangled in sin and in wickedness. Help us to always see that obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ is truly freeing. We pray all of this in his excellent, holy, and wonderful name. Amen.